On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about allergies because a McMaster study, or at least a study led by McMaster, has raised some new suggestions about how schools should deal with things like peanuts and other things. Should there be a ban or should there be a more nuanced approach? We're going to talk about it. And we're going to talk about why it is that athletes that are at higher levels of training and more primed than ever before seem to be getting injured so often. Shouldn't we be getting fewer injuries? What about the strengthening the body and all the rest of the stuff? Oh, and we'll talk about the best, and when I say best, I mean most ridiculous, baby names so far that have been given out in 2021. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. If you have had a kid in school over the past 20 years or so, give or take, you've absolutely at one time or another received a note home or notes plural home saying please don't send peanuts or peanut butter or anything to school with your child don't give them a peanut butter sandwich for lunch we have kids with allergies don't do it you may have even had notes about other foods that are commonly allergenic at your school saying please do not uh we had a situation you may recall in the city of hamilton I'm guessing three, four years ago now, can't remember exactly where a father was asking the city to ban peanuts and all peanut products at Tim Hortons Field. So everybody would fall under this. Well, unquestionably, there are people with terrible, terrible allergies who, if they were to come in contact with these foods, would have a horrible reaction. There's there's no question about that. That's not up for discussion. We all know that's the case. But is a ban the best solution? There's new research from a panel led by McMaster researchers that says maybe schools shouldn't be banning foods. They should be dealing with the potential of allergy situations differently. Dr. Susan Wasserman is a clinical is the head of clinical immunology and allergy in the allergy division at McMaster. She joins us now. Dr. Wasserman, thanks for the time today. Appreciate it. Oh, hi. Uh, we've all seen these notes over the years. We've all, as I say, probably got one at home with our kids. When did this start? When did we begin, when did schools begin making these decisions to say, just don't even bring these foods to school anymore? You know what, it's hard to know when the whole practice started, but clearly since I've been in practice, and that's by now a long time, you've mentioned 20 years. I mean, clearly it's been around for at least that amount of time. Well, yeah, because I remember when I was in school, and I, you know, I'm not that young anymore. I mean, when I was in school, everybody brought peanut butter sandwiches. So it's within the last third. I mean, I, I said 20 years, maybe 25, but it hasn't been forever. Let's put it that way. Yeah, no, it definitely. Look, it's a practice that's come up easily in the past 20, 25 years that I remember as well. And, you know, I guess that it arose for reasons that peanut allergy is becoming more prevalent and people are more aware and they saw the school as a place where children eat and hence these practices got established. Just before we get to the practices, let me ask you, because you just touched on something that I think everybody is confused by. There does seem to be an awful lot more kids, especially these days, who have these allergies than I remember in the past. Is that the case? And if it is, why? That's the million-dollar question. I mean, we've been noting these trends now for easily about 30, 40 years, and probably the most popular explanation for why people are becoming more allergic is something called the hygiene hypothesis. We're living a lot more cleanly. We vaccinate. We take antibiotics. We have better hygiene. And all of that has led to a somewhat lazy immune system. So we're no longer busy fighting infection. We're becoming allergic. 
And there are many other explanations as well that have, you know, some degree of support, but we don't know for sure. Uh, Is it vitamin D? Is it the nature of the bacteria that we're exposed to? Is it viral infection? Uh, Is it the diet? Since we've been avoiding things like peanuts for so many years, did we encourage the problem that way? So not an easy answer, quite complex, but those are some of the more popular explanations. We, we don't have time today to ask whether or not then that means we should all let our kids wallow in their own filth and live outside and not wash their hands and all that stuff. I don't think that's quite the answer. No, we're not suggesting <laughs> that that's sort of uh, the approach to take at this stage. Okay, so back to this situation though. Yeah. So we've had for years now, whatever it is, we've had these schools saying, don't bring it. We're going to have a ban. That's the easiest way to do this. Has that been successful? You know, our guideline looked at the literature. Uh, It didn't go into the individual schools and see what people are doing, yet we know that this is the practice. So a group of us got together and went through all the scientific publications on the subject. And the information has been extremely inconsistent. There is no good consistent evidence that banning a food is associated with a safer environment and less reactions. So this is what we found when we went through the scientific evidence. Now, to be fair, the evidence is not high quality, and these recommendations are not strong recommendations. They're recommendations that are called conditional because they're based on relatively weak evidence. But there is no strong support that we were able to find for banning of foods. Now, I'll just continue, Scott, because I think it's important. Uh, This will not be the situation uh, for everybody. If you have extremely young kids, it may make sense to ban a food. Or kids who can't self-manage or kids who cognitively can't understand that they need to avoid a certain food to which they're allergic. We've made allowances in the guideline for all these exceptions where, you know, banning may be appropriate. We've also emphasized a lot of other safety things that people should be doing beyond banning. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Doctor, when we go back, and again, we don't know exactly when this started, but is it your best guess that the reason schools decided to do these blanket bans on things like peanut butter or other things is because it's the simplest response and therefore it's the easiest one to implement and therefore let's just ban as opposed to having any nuance? You know what, look, it may have been at least one of the reasons, and I don't even know how easy it is, but it does make intuitive sense, at least initially, let's just ban it. But, you know, can you really ban? At the end of the day, I don't know who's overseeing a lot of this banning. It's very hard to implement. Uh, And for us, you know, having reviewed all of this, we think that there's just a lot of other common sense things that could be put into place so that food allergic children are not excluded and yet still maintain a safe environment. Yeah. And and you know what? People seem to have accepted the idea of a peanut butter ban for the most part. I don't hear any parents now fighting that one, but you know what? Kids are allergic to other things too. I mean, you're the expert, not me here, but I mean, there are other foods that could cause serious allergic reactions and I don't hear schools banning milk or fish products or other, you know, I mean, I don't even know what the other things were that could cause the enormous reactions, but uh, they've accepted the one. I think if the school were to push it and say, we're banning this, 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 and this, you know, you have a bigger problem because now people are going to say, no, we're not accepting that anymore. 
Yeah, absolutely. Look, there are a lot of things that somebody could be allergic to, but peanuts have gotten the most attention over the years. In fact, milk is just as big a problem. People have milk days and pizza days and milk is splashable and this sort of thing, yet you won't see too many schools banning milk. Uh, anyway, so it's a complex subject. Uh, there's certainly, you know, times when schools have made efforts to ban more than one thing. We saw this in an Ottawa school, which attempted to ban eight different foods, and it did become a problem because really it affects the quality of life of everybody, not only the food allergic child, but the people around them. So what is the option? If we're not going to ban everything and make it a carpet, like a, a blanket thing, what is a way, a realistic way that we could handle something like this? Yeah. You know what? Every school is going to have to make its own decision. Uh, you know, it's going to meet, it's going to have to meet with the parents, meet with the stakeholders, discuss things amongst the teachers as well as the families. There may be situations where a food ban is appropriate, like for the very young, but otherwise, I think that the answer lies in education and in training. Epinephrine has to be available. Teachers have to know what to look for. Children need to be well supervised during snacks and meals. There's got to be good hand washing. There has to be surfaces of tables kept clean. All of these things that we may have said but have never always been carried out as effectively as they could be. So, you know, at the end of the day, we're hoping to integrate food allergic children uh, just into a more normalized environment if everybody pays a bit more attention. And this is going to be the subject of study. Just as this guideline resulted from study, how we go forward with this uh, is going to have to be studied for its outcomes as well. I think an awful lot of people are listening saying you're making an awful lot of common sense here, but wouldn't something like this just terrify school administrators and principals and whatever else? Because banning is easy. Putting the responsibility on a teacher to step in potentially and take action and maybe have to administer an epinephrine pen or whatever else, that could be frightening. You could lead to a lawsuit there if something's not done right. We don't want to do that. That's too hard, too yeah. risky. Look, there's no question that there's going to be anxiety, and that's why every school is going to have to institute it the way it sees best. And, you know, teachers are educated in anaphylaxis. They're not experts, but clearly uh, they've been taught about what sort of symptoms to look for. Same as for any other medical illness that a child enters with in that school. So it does take a bit of judgment. There's no question that it's a bit anxiety-provoking. Uh, but this is the situation that we find ourselves in where total avoidance of the problem may not be an answer. Hmm. Are schools right now supposed to have EpiPens? Is that EpiPens? Is that supposed to be a standardized thing in our schools? No, and that was one of the things that we've recommended, namely stock epinephrine. We saw this as very cost effective and a good recommendation for schools to stock a supply of epinephrine rather than every child bringing in one or two EpiPens, storing them in the office. Uh, in general, a very large supply being available, which luckily most children uh, don't often have to use. So we saw stock epinephrine as a cost-effective good way of covering the problem, especially if families can't afford to have multiple mm. epinephrine auto-injectors. One last thing, and it's related, but not directly, but I think it is tied in. Uh, when I was a kid, I got allergy shots. I can't even remember what all they were for, what I was all allergic to. Nonetheless, nothing very serious. I wasn't going to die from any of them. 
But are we any closer now to allergy shots for kids who have these very, very serious allergies so that we could move away from these concerns? Are we any closer to a, a fix or is this still something we're searching for? We're still searching for a cure, but I'd say that we are closer to finding something that really works along the same principle as a shot. There's now something called oral immunotherapy, where kids who are allergic under the supervision of an allergist are fed tiny amounts of the food in question, and they're built up to a certain maintenance amount until they start to tolerate it. It's not a cure, but it allows that child to tolerate small amounts so that if they bump into the food accidentally, they uh, may not have an allergic reaction. So that's where we are now in terms of uh, a new therapy for treating food allergy. Fascinating topic, fascinating study. People can read more about this. Go to thespec.com. McMaster-led study recommends against food bans in schools is the headline. Dr. Susan Wasserman, really appreciate your time today. Thank you for doing this. It's a pleasure. Thanks. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. George Springer, who the Blue Jays signed to a $150 million contract this offseason, not all for one year, for five years, nonetheless. Still a lot of money. I'll take it. Uh, He's out of the lineup again today because, well, first he had an oblique injury and then he had a quad injury and then he had what was described as fatigue and then his leg seems to have seized up again. We don't really know. Uh, But he is not alone being out of the lineup. Just among the Blue Jays. And I'm not talking about guys who have elbow injuries or things which are always baseball injuries. I'm talking about other injuries. Alejandro Kirk has what's being described just as a sore hip. Hyundai Ryu has, well, he pulled his glute. He had a butt pull is what he had. Julian Mayweather has an oblique problem. There are others. And if you go down Major League Baseball's injured list right now, it is a mile long and we are only a month into the season. And it's not just Major League Baseball. We hear all the time now stories of athletes getting hurt, elite athletes, primed athletes, top-notch athletes, incredibly fit, toned people who this is what they do for a living. And, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, and I think a lot of other people have been too. Shouldn't all the modern training techniques that we now have, that they use, modern training, modern nutrition, modern medicine, modern everything, all the things we've learned from sports science, shouldn't this all be reducing injuries? Shouldn't we be having way fewer injuries than we do now? Steve Lidstone is the Associate Director of Sports Performance at Brock University. He manages the Sports Medicine and Sports Performance Department. Uh, He's been the former head strength and conditioning coach at York University, at McMaster University. He has worked with Hockey Canada, Wrestling Canada, uh, Canada's basketball, bobsleigh, trampoline, water ski teams, others as well. He is a man who absolutely knows his way around this stuff. He joins us now. Steve, I appreciate your time tonight. Thanks for doing this. No problem. Thanks for having me. When you look at, and we'll start with baseball, though, as I say, it's just a jumping off point today because that's sort of where you really notice this. When you look at the sheer volume of players that are hurt, does it ever surprise you? You know, we've been looking at this for years. Um, You know, for us, I I guess the biggest issue is in pro sport, as you mentioned, we have millions of dollars of contract riding on on majority of these players being able to perform uh, for the organization each and every night. 
And I think, you know, when, when you look at it, a few stats that I looked up um, that, that I was interested in, in, in 2018, USC posted uh, a stat where over the past 15 years, Major League Baseball players on the DL have cost $7 billion in wages to lost oh. playing time. Oh, um, and 25% of the pitches have on, undergone Tommy John surgery. So, I mean, what's interesting is they are professional athletes they are what you would call the 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 cream of the crop that has risen and and, and should be playing at a very high level performing at high level and you're right we are surrounding them with as many things as possible to provide them with the opportunity for success but sometimes we just don't know what's happening behind the scenes and and that sometimes can lead to some of these issues kind of creeping up so um you know a a part of what my job is and then what i look into is the behind the scenes um holistic care of our athletes and and that can happen at the national sport level university level and and at every level that we work with professional level the different variables to keep an athlete healthy change and at the professional level when you're looking at pro athletes you are dealing usually with the most skilled athletes but when you mention you know fit are they, they they should be fit but what is our metrics for you know, making sure that our athletes are fit. And are the athletes coming in and actually going through a battery of testing uh, in spring training and in training camps? Sometimes they're not. Uh, sometimes teams are just you know, signing them contracts are coming in, but there's no formalized testing to make sure that they are, in fact, ready for the rigors and the volume of what's going to be thrown at them in the regular season. It really depends on the organization, their buy-in. I mean, the sports science is being done in the EPL, uh, you know, English Premier League and, and other uh, world-class soccer leagues, I would put ahead of majority of sports, especially coming out of COVID. Um, you know, COVID was one of the biggest things that threw a wrench into the regularity of schedules in our pro athletes. And I think that's why you saw a dramatic increase in injuries coming out of last year's, uh, you know, lockdown or abbreviated spring training and then a three um you know, a three-week summer camp that they put the pro baseball players through, but you saw a, a drastic increase in injuries. And I think that was probably, you know, the, the biggest thing that, that maybe hampered a lot of the players, um, you know, injury to lost playing time was is because of that, you know, break in spring training. They were two weeks away from the start of the season. They went into a, a kind of lockdown due to COVID. And then, you know, they lost basically a month of, of their, their regularity of, of, of baseball uh, and then came in for an abbreviated, you know, uh, ramp up. And what that meant was a lot of players were out of routine. Um, they weren't as active during that lockdown period. They maybe had not get as uh, gotten as many reps. And so, you know, that can affect them for not only last season, but it can affect them for this season as well. So um, I think that's some of the things that we're looking at uh, behind the scenes is, is those pieces, but as well as the stress that comes along with playing during uh, a pandemic where, you know, you have added stress and, and which leads to increased tension and in, in muscle tone, um, you know, due to the stress of competing away from family. If you're not in a bubbled environment where your family can be with you, which we saw in a lot of pro sports this past year, um, the uncertainty of, of, of the health and well-being of your family and friends will wear on you, you know, subconsciously, I think. I think we're all human in that. And then, you know, the, the health concern and traveling and, and the maintaining your health. And traveling, and not only that, but a lot of these players are getting tested on a regular basis for COVID, and that brings up a level of anxiety for them as well. As am I going to be able to do my job and maintain my contract if I'm not able to play because I've tested positive? 
So, okay, but I, we with all of this stuff though, Steve. I mean, and and yep. they're all they're all very valid points, but. I do wonder as you, you know, because there are people who are, the athletes are using these amazing resources and, and the, the yeah. nutrition and the people like you who are helping with strength and conditioning and all these things that we know. Yeah. And I just wonder if we've reached a point where we are, we, we are almost asking too much of the body. We've made them so strong. We've made them so perfect in so many ways, but our body is just not designed to carry that load or to, to operate at the speeds or the strength or whatever else, the tightness that, that they work at now. Is there anything to that? Yeah, there is. I mean, you look at it, I mean, the average, you know, three things that are looked at in pitching right now are, are velo, which is your velocity uh, through stat cast, spin rate, how much rate of spin you can put on a baseball and then, you know, movement, pinch movement and how many drop in inches you have, say in your curveball. Um, and so when you look at those three things over the last 10 years, the, there's been a dramatic increase in the attention to these three things because we can now track them. But at the same time, players are able to, are, are pushing themselves more and more at a young age. I mean, you look at the average, uh, Tommy John surgery, the highest rates of, of these surgeries occur between the ages of 15 and 19 in young baseball players. So what you're looking at, and this isn't just in baseball, this is in all sport in early specialization in sport from a very young age, we're talking less than 10 where kids are just focused on 12 months of the year of trying to become as good as possible in those 10,000 hours of repetition, which has been widely, uh, you know, broadcast, uh, you know, through the book outliers and what it takes to master a sport. And so these kids are trying to ramp up as much as possible to get those scholarships to, um, you know, play in the minors and work their way up to pros. And, you know, that might be baseball, basketball, you look at it, but, the early specialization leading to a lack of generalized fitness, I think really hurts the body's ability to be um, durable and sustain long bouts of high levels of performance in sport. And I think a lot of pro athletes are understanding that the pay scale is so high, they're willing to risk that in an exchange for specializing and pushing the body as much as they can until it actually breaks down. So um, are people then, are the pros showing up at the pro level already essentially damaged goods because of all the hours and the specific training they've done to get to that point. Yeah. I mean, I brought up, you know, obviously COVID was one thing that threw a wrench in the plans, but I think if you look at the long-term development of these athletes, you know, the goal to, to, you know, pitch 100 pitches, for example, like the stats of, of, of knowing what, what's required for the sport, the, the, the types of, of spin rate, you know, the, the average velo of uh, velocity that is as put, been put on on pitchers to to reach average velocities um, that are much higher now than they were a decade ago. I think puts uh, excessive wear and wear and tear and stress on, you know, obviously the elbow, uh, shoulder, um, hip, trunk, um, in pitchers primarily, but um, not only that, but in baseball uh, or sorry, in hitters and, and watching the hitters and, and the velocity of the ball on the way out of the park that can now be tracked. You, you know, it, you're you're starting to see stats that are being applauded more and more where that's what they're ingrained to try and achieve as much as possible. It's not just as simple as a nice swing. It's how hard can I hit this ball and take the cover off of it every time I try and take a swing and, you know, power and, and, and performance is impressive and it's what's applauded by, you know, sports center and, and the highlights, but it also co comes at a cost. And a lot of it is trying to push your body more and more and more in order to generate more and more force but there's only so much like, and, and that's something that we do at the, at the national team level. We are constantly studying the athletes and we have you know, power, speed, strength, fitness profiles on each. And you're constantly trying to walk that fine line of what is strong enough, what is powerful enough 
Um, and at the same time, as you mentioned, support them with resources such as sports nutrition, sports psychology, sleep, uh, sleep um, guides or, or professionals in, in that just focus on sleep uh, in order to make sure that the athletes are sleeping well for recovery. Um, all the technology that we use, Normatech, things like that, to, to maintain uh, recovery as well. Theraguns, like just all these pieces you'll see being used on the benches at NBA games and stuff like it's. It's pretty crazy to, to the level it's gotten to, but it's just because we're trying to maintain the athlete's ability to perform for an extended period of time and, and maintain health while they're at the pro level to, to maintain or sustain their their contracts. So it, I think is it all probably- necessary, though? And, and sorry to interrupt, but is it all yeah. necessary? And the reason I say that, it sounds like a strange question to ask because, of course, as you know, you want to be the best you can be. But, yeah. I mean, if we look at the the benchmarks of the very best. I mean, the, the we're, we're talking about baseball here. We could be talking about any sport, but in baseball, Nolan Ryan back in the 1970s was topping out at the same maximum velocity, maybe faster than yeah. the hardest throwing guy is today. So all yeah. this nutrition, all this training, all this everything has not made anybody throw the ball harder. Baseballs, the batters are not hitting the ball further than Mickey Mantle did once upon a time. So it seems like we've, maxed out on our body's capability for a lot of these things but we're still tweaking it to try and get more and something's got to give when you do that yeah but that's the nature of sport right we're trying to um, get to a a higher standard of sport and i think that's the constant push that we see every olympic cycle every you know every year in professional sport the goal is always you know higher or bigger faster stronger and it's always been you know the goal over the last I'd say decade or two, but I would agree. I mean, the, the athletes you're pointing out, Mantle, um, you know, you're looking at outliers, guys who did things because they were exceptional athletes um, who could do things at a higher skill level than anybody else and repeatedly do it. Nolan Ryan, I mean, you know, the, the, the speeds at which he could pitch, you know, were, were not average. They were, you know, certainly an outlier as well. So, yeah, there are people who, you know, for lack of a better term, were, were pretty were, were freaky at what they could do. Uh, exceptional at what they could do and you know that's they've set the standard for what everybody else is trying to measure up to and so players that may not have um, the same potential and skill or or, or just god-given ability are trying to make up for it with training regimens in order to you know do what they are push the body to do maybe more than it's capable of doing genetically and i think that's where we get into this you know dichotomy of how how strong do you need to be how fast you need to be in order Mm. to perform in sport and is is strong enough and that's the issue that i have is i've always i've always stated that the weight room depending on where you are in your development you know early on yes is important but as you get to the higher and higher levels of sport the weight room should only be 30 percent at most of your focus the the ability to work on your 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 speed mechanics your acceleration your deceleration your change of direction your even in baseball the amount of diving and sliding your falling skills are they being rehearsed with, with some of these guys um, in different ways using, you know, calisthenics, uh, gymnastics, just a variety of ways that, that challenge the body differently, but maybe not under the stress of what barbells and dumbbells are, mm. are, are, you know, always commonly looked at as the only way to train. I think that, you know, when you get to the higher levels of sport, you've achieved these, these high levels of contract. Your only goal is really to maintain your, 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 your health. And I think that's well, let me ask we- you that then. Steve, let me ask you that because that's, that's the, I think that's one of the really interesting parts about this. If you have an athlete, an elite athlete in front of you and you give them a choice and you say, look, we can get to be the absolute peak athlete 
that can be sensational for a couple of years, a few years, or we can ratchet it down a little bit and try and work on your longevity and make sure you can stay around. You may not be quite as good as you might be, but you can be healthy for a longer time. What, which choice do you think most athletes would make? I mean, this was brought up at the most recent uh, Masters with uh, DeChambeau and just all the training that he's doing, putting on 40 pounds of muscle on his body. And what you're seeing is players, because of the, you know, um, you know, almost ludicrous uh, paychecks that they're receiving for sport these days are more than willing to sacrifice the longevity for the short-term payout, right? And I think more and more, some majority of players, I think, would go in that, you know, go in that direction to just have a short-term exceptional career for, you know, exceptional um, payout. There are some that probably would argue in the other direction, but I would guess not as many. Um, and I think that's the job of, of someone like myself as a, as a performance um, consultant where, you know, it's really what is, what, what is your long-term goal? What do you want to do? And if it is, you know, you know as much payout as, as possible or as much um, success as possible in a short period of time, then we do push the body ex- exceptionally harder than we would if, you know, the athlete's goals are for longevity. So I think it is a question that ultimately lies within the athlete. And then as performance consultants, our job is to make sure we can, um, you know, get, uh, I guess, garner that information and then do what we can to make sure we're, we're achieving the goals that, you know, ultimately the athlete has to be set with. Last thing, is the body designed for the things that we're asking it among the top athletes, many of them to do these days? I mean, uh, the one thing that, and I know very little about anatomical, biological, sports science stuff, the one thing I've always heard is that you can build muscles as big as you want. You can do all the stuff, but your tendons and ligaments don't grow any bigger. They are what they are. And so if you become too big, you're, you're asking for a bigger frame, a bigger load to be carried on something that can't be expanded. Have we reached a point where we, where we say we're just too refined at this point? Um, I don't, I don't think I would lean. I don't think I lean in that direction. I think for myself, looking at it, yes, some athletes may spend, like I said, more than thirty percent of their time in the weight room, and and, and they're being put through, uh, you know, training regimens which may not be ideal for you know longevity, um, and that may be a problem at this point in their career, depending on where they're at. But uh, I would I would argue that you know our bodies are able to withstand quite a bit. But you are right, ligaments and tendons. And, you know, muscular tendons, junction injuries, MTJ injuries are the underlying factors that we're seeing in baseball, especially in, in elbow and shoulder and throwing, because the body isn't meant to throw, you know, 100 miles an hour, 100 mm. pitches. It, it's not meant to withstand that. If, if we're smart in sports science, we are limiting pitch count. We are limiting the velocity that's required in certain pitches, depending on, you know, who's in the stable and, and who's able to throw for you. But I think it's we do need to do a better job of managing the athletes, managing expectations, and understanding that yes, uh, we demand a lot of the athletes, but can we maintain their longevity a little bit more by you know just providing more guidance to them and what is probably best course of action? I think it's tough to do when you're in pro sport and you're you're demanding these um, higher salaries, but. I think for the most part, our bodies can withstand quite a bit, but you're right, ligaments and tendons have a, they're the underlying factor. If we build up too much muscle tone, uh, too much, you know, force development within our, our muscular tissue, the ligaments and tendons are going to have to put up with, you know, um, the deceleration, acceleration factors that go along with them. So I think that's probably a big thing that, 
you know, you're right. We are pushing the boundary, but I still think the body can withstand more than we think. It's just making sure we support it with, you know, the fundamentals of flexibility, um, nutrition, you know, sleep, things like that, in order to make sure that the athletes are able to perform at a high level and, and reduce the risk of injury more than anything. And, and not only that, but the race cars. And you've got to take them to the shop and, and work on soft tissue work, um, treatments with chiropractors, osteos. They need to, what I usually find with pro athletes is you have to, you always ask them what they do for training. But then when we ask them what they do for recovery, they almost sometimes look at us going, uh, not as much as I do for training. And, hmm. and really, if you're trying to maintain that paycheck, you need to take a look at it a little bit differently and spend a little more time going to the auto body shop and getting a little more treatment. Steve Lidstone from Brock University and so many other places. Uh, Steve, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It is a uh, it's a fascinating it's a fascinating situation, as I say, because so many athletes who are now trained and toned more better than any athletes in the history of the world still getting injured and you know it's it's it is a puzzle there's no question you i mean it's 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 a tough one even the experts even steve there's no guaranteed answer for why it happens but it's boy it, it does seem odd it does seem that science and all this stuff should have made it by now that you could get an indestructible athlete almost but we are far from that you're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's been a weird year, weird 14, 15 months, whatever it is now. So it's probably no surprise to anyone that those who decided or happened to create a life had a baby in this time. You know, you've been in, in lockdown, you've been in quarantine, you might be a little stir crazy, it might be a little silly. Some of the names that have been given to children over, well, this year so far, there's a list that's coming out of some of the things, some of the names people have come up with for new children, for new babies. And um, maybe I shouldn't be surprised because every year there are ridiculous names. I mean, every year, but th- this year seems to have some extra juice in the stupidity department when it comes to naming kids. Like, I, Here's the thing, and I'm going to bring Ben into the conversation for a minute. Ben, you've got a nice, normal, nothing wrong with Ben, nothing wrong with Benjamin. It's a good name. It's a solid name. It's a name that when you were given that name as a baby, your parents could say, could look at each other and say, you know, unless somebody comes along who's the new Adolf Hitler, whose name is Ben, we're pretty safe as far as knowing that Ben, our son, is going to be able to wear this name for his life and nobody's going to look at him funny. There's right? nothing contra- controversial about the name Ben. The, no. And, and you know, like there are some names that due to no fault of someone's own and no way to predict it, that the name kind of goes haywire. And again, you know, if, if you had back in the eighties, if you had named your child OJ, you may have wanted to reconsider after what happened in the nineties, or if, you know, pick your, Pick your situation of someone who did something that was, you know, became notorious, but you can't predict that. You give your child a good, solid, interesting name and hopefully spell it normally too. Well, just hang in with that one. Um, But, but, but the flip side is you're sitting there, whether it's the mother 
swimming in a gurgling cesspool of pregnancy hormones or the father who is equally freaked out by the idea of becoming a father and his brain is not functioning at full capacity one way or another somewhere along the way some of these people decided a name yeah let's do something here that is going to ensure our child is a mess let's start with some of 2021's outstanding name offerings that have come up for example, on this one, you knew this. Now, we've talked about this before. Last year, there were some kids that were named Covidia or COVID. Um, we know that. That was that was out there. But how about Pandemica? Wow. That's a new one for 2021. You've named your child Pandemica. That feels excessively medical. <laughs> it, it seems excessively, you know, well, we're there is a point at which we're going to be past this. Right. It's to me, naming your child Pandemica is like buying Mickey Mouse ears at Disney World. It's fine at the moment, but no one wears Mickey Mouse ears once they get home. In the park, it's great. At home, not so much. Pandemica in 2021, you go, ha ha ha, your child is Pandemica. Wait till 2030 when they're now in school and the teacher says a pandemic and everyone's like, seriously? Like, what were your parents smoking? Uh, this one, next one, don't understand this one at all. Don't know where this comes from. It's got nothing to do, I don't think, with anything. But what right-thinking parent names their child Salad? No right-thinking parent. <laughs> no right-thinking parent goes Salad. Salad. Yeah, yeah Salad. And just, I like, mean, just like the word, right? There's nothing extra to this. It's just... It, what's unclear, because all they've given us here when they've come up with this list, we don't know if there was a, a middle name or something, but... Salad, if anything, should be the middle name. Like if you want to call your kid Caesar or uh, I don't know what other kind house. <laughs> yeah. What's the one with apple pieces? The, um, um, I don't know, Mediterranean. Well, I'll think I... of it in a minute, but yeah. So salad could be a middle name if you really wanted to create problems and cause your kid problems, but Waldorf, Waldorf salad. There you go. Uh, well, see, Waldorf is actually a name, but then you put it with salad and now it's stupid. Crispy. <laughs> what, what, what was the birth process like for you, mother? If the kid comes out and the name you think is appropriate is crispy, what was the kid in a chrysalid as he, he or she was sliding out of you? Was there a, a, a hardened shell around him or maybe, her? Maybe they were born in Arizona or something where it's just so hot. I guess. And again, if the middle name is Crunch, well, you know, <laughs> Milk. Milk. Come on. You call your kid Milk. <laughs> this is a child, not a cat. I've ran into cats named Caramel and Blueberry. I even met one named Meatball. Milk is something I could see a cat being named. Don't name your child it, though. Okay, help me with this next one. I don't know what this even means. Maybe I'm just missing a pop culture reference somewhere along the way. Maybe it's Game of Thrones or something. Brogan. <laughs> I have no idea what that would be. I don't Brogan? Know. Maybe it's something. No. You've heard of people refer to something as like, hey, you're one of my bros. Maybe they're trying to think it's like Logan, but they're a bro. That's a good, that's as good an explanation as any. Cause I'm not, and again, maybe I'm missing something. And I thought, oh, maybe it's backwards. Maybe it's one of those ones where they get really creative and they think, oh, we'll name it backwards. Well, that would be Nagorb, which is even worse. Now you sound like you're living on some planet 
Urbol, you know, Although, in the if you were to ever Star find Wars yourself galaxy. creating a character for Dungeons and Dragons, Urgorp sounds pretty great. <laughs> it kind of does. Motel. See, now this is just naming the kid after where he was conceived. <laughs> if you're calling your kid, like, why not just, you know, backseat Hotel of a 1982? Six. Yeah. What kind of like Nashville Holiday Inn? Call your kid that. <laughs> Motel. And it's not even hotel. Like, you're low ending the, the, the status of your kid. That's how Road you know it's a real story. Oh, yeah, probably. Motel. Prochetto. <laughs> hey, kid, you're going to be named after cured meat. Yum. Delicious. No one's no one's arguing the deliciousness of it. Heaven help the parents if the kid grows up to be vegan or vegetarian. Oh, boy. You know, <laughs> Then they'll have to like go and officially change it to kale. <laughs> <laughs> My parents told me that the reason I was named Ben was because when I was born, I looked like Ben. I don't think taking the same approach literally was needed here. If you saw your child and thought they looked like prosciutto, when they were born, that's one ugly child who probably has medical conditions that need to be addressed immediately. Yeah. Immediately. The child was born with no skin. That's, that's what it would look like. Uh, here's one. I mean, look, uh, the name, a, a lovely connotation, lovely, probably lovely thought behind it. I get the intention. Don't know about a name. My blessing. <laughs> M-Y-B-L-E-S-S-N. My blessing. It rolls off I, the look, tongue it's, it's, kind of fun. It is, and I get, you know, your child is a blessing, my blessing, but it's just, I don't know. Uh, all right, this one, the opposite. Okay, if you, if my blessing was you're thinking, well, I'm not sure I want to go that route. How about monster? <laughs> <laughs> wow, okay, that's not pulling any punches if this is going to grow up to be one crazy child who doesn't follow any rules whatsoever and grows horns. That's... Uh, okay, here's what... This is now... You talked about spelling, all right? This one, again, understanding what they're trying to do here, but... You, my liege. So you're, you're naming your child my liege, as in how you would refer to a king. Uh, it's silly. But here's where the problem comes in. They don't know how to spell. How do you think you would spell my liege? I would imagine M-Y-L-E-I-G-E. You might think that would do it. And at least then you would look at it and go, oh, it's my liege. No, they spelled it M-I-L-E-A-G-E. <laughs> mileage. So this kid forever now is going to be called mileage. He was supposed to be, uh, you know, a royal subject or a royal king and now he is what you are look at with your car and it's gas <laughs> distribution <laughs> mileage all right so if monster was an insult to your kid and prosciutto is weird what exactly are you saying about your child these are all names by the way that are legitimate names that have been given to kids in 2021 what are you saying about your child if you name him mud piles <laughs> I could now, see this again. Maybe that's what happened as soon as he came out. It was <laughs> oh, mud piles. <laughs> We're gonna name him the first thing that we see. The first act he does. If he if he cries, we're going to call him whimper. If he laughs or if he smiles, we're going to call him smiley. But he did poop, so we're going to call him mud piles. <laughs> I could see a nurse with a like the 
uh, clipboard there and be like, okay, mud piles. Last name, please? <laughs> mud piles. Uh, which is still worse. The next one's not great, but it, it's still better than mud piles. Linoleum. Like the tiles? I guess. Wow. Linoleum. Maybe they were a big it, it, no effects fan? I mean, uh, when was linoleum last popular? 1971? It's not even like it's something that you look at and you go, you know, linoleum is really, it's a thing now. It's really in. Linoleum. Uh, okay, this is just mean. I'm sorry. This is just mean. Entirely mean. I can't believe that there's a, I mean, mud piles is pretty mean. But fallopia. <laughs> you call yeah. your daughter fallopia. <laughs> I assume it's a daughter. Doesn't say. That's even more mean if you call your son fallopia. <laughs> we are going to what? sound educated and we are going to sound scientific. She is going to become a genius because the yes. name says so. Those are beautiful children. What are their names? This is my daughter fallopia and my son urethra. <laughs> I mean, it's just incredibly ridiculous. Fallopia. Um, okay. But, Okay, fallopia probably right now is the worst one just because of what you have to put up with. Although, once again, don't know what the parents are thinking. This is one of those hyphenated ones that sounds like it's a trailer park name. And, and you know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Jelly Ann. Jelly Ann. J E L L I Ann. Jelly Ann. <laughs> that sounds like a stripper name or something you're well, trying to do. Not. What? You know, it's a very good point. It's a very good point. They have destined this child to a lifetime, a career in the adult arts. If you've called your kid Jelly, she's either, and again, I'm assuming it's a girl, she's either got to be enormous or working with fruit preserves or a stripper. You're right. It's one or the other. What a widespread of options you have as employment prospects. Maybe you could cover a number of those. Maybe she, her act could be doing preserves on stage while disrobed. <laughs> I guess. And ladies and gentlemen, Jelly. <laughs> really? I was coming here to see something and there's a woman up on stage just making fruit preserves. Okay. <laughs> um, again, kind of thinking this might be trailer park, but uh, I, you know, I don't know. Truck. You know, Your son is just truck. I can respect this one. You know, you get some names that are really too flamboyant. You need a good man's name. What's your child? What's your child's name? He's three months old. Truck. Truck. All right. This uh, kid was born more. with a handlebar mustache. Very quickly, and this one I might even—I don't even know if we're allowed to say this on the air. <laughs> um, it's a body part. It's a legitimate name for a body part. Someone named their daughter Ariola. Why? Why? That's a that's a fantastic question. Why would you do that? Does the Why doctor you... not have a say in any of this where you can say, what would you like your child's name to be? Areola. Try again. Uh, well, because don't you think that probably somewhere, th this sounds to me like one of those names where the parents heard the word at some point and went, well, that's kind of pretty, but had no idea what it was. <laughs> and just thought, that's a pretty sounding name. But at that point, as you say, shouldn't the nurse say, just pull her aside and say to the mother or the father, do you know what that is? Just, I just want to be clear so we're not having a misunderstanding here. Uh, a couple more very quickly. We've got to go Velveeta. Ooh. Velveeta sounds delicious, but um, not, not, not. 
Don't name your child it. Maybe a kind of cupcake. Uh, a riot. And um, and my and my my the one that you talked about spelling. This this is that one. This kid will. This is this kid has been punished forever now. Her name is Caitlin. It's a lovely name. There, there is literally nothing wrong with the name Caitlin. It's a beautiful name. But how did the parents spell Caitlin? Capital K, lowercase a, v, capital V, capital I, capital I, capital I, L Y N. Did they Roman numerals for the eight is in the middle of it? K eight Lin. That is so dumb. You're not creative. You're just dumb. This wow. poor kid is going to have to tell people for the every single day of her life. How do you spell that name? I can see Starbucks normally ruins a regular name. What's your name? John. <laughs> and that's just going to get mangled in the ways it does. How are you going to get? Maybe this is the exact opposite. They're going to only ever have it spelled correctly. What's your name? Caitlin. Oh, of course. K-A-V-I-I-I-L-Y-N. Of course. How of course. Else? Exactly. Anyway, if you have other, if you know of other names that people have named their kids in these weird COVID times, let us know. But there's some of the, uh, the oddest ones. And if you know someone who's named their daughter Fallopia, please help them out. It's not too late. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.